Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalbathanchel. Connecticut has an established shellfish industry, but some ocean farmers in our state have been growing and harvesting another crop, a type of seaweed called kelp, sugar kelp to be exact. Coming up, we hear from a local restaurant that supports sustainable fishing and farming. David Standridge is executive chef at Shipwright's Daughter in Mystic, where sugar kelp is on the menu in some innovative ways. We talk to him later. And we hear from one of the few kelp farmers in our state. Susie Flores and her husband own Stonington Kelp Company, the largest commercial seaweed farm in Connecticut. First, kelp can be eaten, but it also improves ocean health, which in turn helps shellfish and other aquatic animals. Joining us now with more on Zoom, Anushka Concepcion, who's an extension specialist with the Connecticut Sea Grant and Yukon Extension Program. Her work is focused on seaweed aquaculture and processing and the direct marketing of shellfish. Anushka, welcome to our show. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Now, you can join as well if you have a question about kelp farming in our state, 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WMPR. Share a comment on our Facebook page or find us on Twitter at Where We Live. Anushka, we're definitely going to learn more about kelp farming and the benefits. But when I I talk about the benefits, uh, there's something called regenerative ocean farming. Tell us about this approach and how it's being applied in our state. So regenerative ocean farming is a concept based on a scientific model called integrated multitrophic aquaculture. It was first developed in Asia decades ago. And what that means is it's the process of cultivating or growing organisms at different trophic levels. So that means they fit in the food chain at different levels. So for example, in Asia, they cultivate fish. We don't do that here in the U.S., but they cultivate fish um, out in the um, open water and Uh, But because fish can produce a lot of waste, um, what they are doing is cultivating organisms at lower trophic levels, such as sea cucumbers. Sea cucumbers can remove waste, but then further to remove additional components um, that are added into the water, uh, they cultivate shellfish, so oysters or uh, mussels, and then another layer of uh, macroalgae, such as sugar kelp. And so the idea is that you're not only cultivating organisms that can be used as food, because it can all be harvested for food or sold as food, um, all the, the organisms in the IMTA system, but essentially you're removing the nutrients that you're adding into the environment in that system. And so that's really the idea behind regenerative farming is coming from that IMTA model. Mm. When you mentioned Asia and we think about seaweed, uh, when we think about kelp or a type of seaweed being uh, grown and harvested here, you know, where did this idea come from? And when we talk about it uh, benefiting the state economy, is it still uh, um, an early industry in our state? It is an early industry, although um, we have been cultivating um, sugar kelp at a very small scale um, for um, almost 10 years now. And um, the idea came from really a a way to diversify in the seafood that we produce. As you had mentioned before, 
um, our primary seafood uh, production is shellfish, so oysters and clams. But really, that's those are just two organisms. So incorporating another organisms, uh, another organism that is just as extractive, such as sugar kelp, it's a native species. It's found locally. It's native to, to our waterways. It's also a nutritious species, and it's it's pretty good. It's delicious. Um, and so it just sort of made sense to enable seafood producers to be able to produce more than one crop on the sites that they already have. Hmm. When we think about uh, what uh, humans are doing to the world's oceans, uh, the impact of carbon dioxide and, and other pollutants uh, because of fertilizer and whatnot. So how does kelp uh, help uh, the ocean health? So because it's a macroalgae, um, it's not a plant, it's a macroalgae but it extracts nutrients right from the water column. Um, And so that's what helps it grow. So the nutrients that we put, or that's already available in the water column, essentially act as fertilizer. It is a photosynthetic organism. So not only does it utilize the quote unquote fertilizer or nutrients in the water, it's also photosynthesizing um, with sunlight. And so really it's just a natural fit um, to seafood production, but also a great way to clean up coastal waterways. You mentioned it's a great fit uh, and natural when we think about uh, production, but what's the commercial infrastructure look like, considering we've already have this, the shellfish industry here? Yeah, so um, really we don't have a lot of um, infrastructure for processing and stabilization. And really, uh, and well, with seaweed, it has a very short shelf life because it's um, mostly made of, of water. Um, and so the, the shelf life meaning it can start to um, degrade very quickly um, if it's not put in a form or stored appropriately um, so that product quality um, can be maintained. Uh, The reason why we don't have a lot of infrastructure, um, it's because our seafood production, again, is based around shellfish and shellfish is sold whole um, and live. And so we're not processing um, as much of our oysters um, and clams as we would other types of seafood. And so that's really the the challenge that um, farmers like Susie and others in Connecticut are trying to address right now. And how can uh, Connecticut Sea Grant help uh, with uh, this process? I know that the state uh, will issue particular producer licenses. And so tell us about, you know, some of the the numbers of people that are licensed and some of the barriers to get them, you know, more involved in in the kelp uh, growing and harvesting. Yeah, that's a great question. So um, Connecticut Sea Grant has been, you know, involved in um, seaweed farming and and aquaculture for, um, for decades. And so um, really what we do is we respond to what our stakeholders need. And um, at the very beginning, well, very beginning of my career back in um, 2012, 2011, um, what was lacking was food safety guidance. Um, and we're really one of the only states in the country that has very set food safety guidance, ensuring that the seaweed that we produce um, and sell um, is safe for human consumption. And, and Susie can attest to that. She has to go through this testing every year. Um, and um, then she gets issued a seaweed producer license, which enables her to sell her crop. Um, so some of the other um, challenges that we have um, really are barriers uh, or the barriers we have uh, include the infrastructure, safe storage, um, but also providing seaweed uh, or increasing shelf life so that 
sugar kelp can be available year round. So that's one of the challenges that, again, supporting Susie, um, you know, working with um, chefs that um, Connecticut Sea Ground is just really trying to help address uh, what we can through providing funding, participating in projects um, to make sure that uh, we do what we can um, to help move this industry forward. You're hearing Anushka Concepcion here on Where We Live. She's an extension specialist with the Connecticut Sea Grant and Yukon Extension Program. Uh, her work focusing on seaweed aquaculture and processing, also the direct marketing of shellfish. Uh, she mentioned Susie. So joining us now on Zoom is one of the owners of the largest commercial seaweed farm in the state, Susie Flores, a kelp farmer, owner of Stonington Kelp Company. That's a regenerative ocean farm. Susie, welcome to our show. Hi, thank you so much for having me. I'm really grateful to be here. So I understand you started, uh, you and your husband, back in 2017. How did you get interested in in sugar kelp? Um, My husband and I, uh, we purchased a marina that was essentially slipping into the water. And so we had this opportunity as we were rehabilitating the marina to have a boat in the water year round. Um, And uh, in looking for, you know, reasons to justify, you know, being on the water year round, we kind of came across this, um, the concept of kelp farming. Originally, we wanted to do it just to grow food for our family. And then the more we looked into it, the more we realized that was uh, not a possibility. However, there was this kind of emerging um, potential for this to be an economically viable revenue stream for our family. So we figured, why not go for it? All of the um, positive environmental impacts that Anushka touched on before was definitely a large driving force for us to kind of move forward with it. But it really is truly a, um, it was an opportunity to do something that was really satisfying and very peaceful and just really enjoyable. We're, we're My husband and I are both water people. We find a lot of peace and solace by being on and around the water. Mm. What's it, a typical day for you uh, harvesting kelp in the season that it's grown? Yeah, so um, the keyword there is in the season. It's a seasonal crop. We outplant in the winter. We tend the farm uh, all winter long over, you know, December, January, February into March. And then we start harvesting after our test results come back and the seaweed is cleared by the state. We start harvesting at the end of March, beginning of April. So in each of those months, the experience that we have is pretty different. Um, During the harvest season, it's a lot of sales, to be honest. It's sales and marketing, trying to um, entice chefs to give this amazing native crop a try on their menus, uh, trying to educate the public about all of the benefits, both health and environmental, that it can have, um, and trying to get people really excited about eating more seaweed, locally Mm -hmm. cultivated seaweed. Anushka explained to us about regenerative ocean farming. That was a big draw for you and your husband uh, to, to, to move on to, to kelp farming. Yeah, it was, um, it, it was really important for us to be doing something that we felt was um, responsible. We have three children, and for me, you know, I think about what legacy I'm leaving behind for them and for their kids. And so this seemed like something that was... Uh, in line with the type of life that we want to leave and the type of example that we wanted to set. And we were very lucky to be in a state where there are a lot of people who are also very interested in this, a lot of, um, uh, you know, scientists uh, that have been studying this whole process. They've been partnering with regulators who are interested in trying to make this economy happen. And um, 
you know, just uh, fishermen out there who wanted to also give this a go and see if they could turn this into um, or create a model that made sense for other people to kind of follow. And that's essentially what we did. We're, we're following a model that other people have already set up and we just kind of put our own spin on it. Mm. We talked about the, the short growing season. And so this is a, a cold water species. We know the water is warming. Uh, so I'm wondering how that's impacting your kelp farming. It definitely has an impact. And, you know, I've only been farming for six years and I've already seen some anecdotal changes um, in the way the environment is responding to uh, climate change. Um, The most obvious impact is that it shortens our season. So um, I like to outplant around Thanksgiving and we usually harvest until uh, middle end of May. Um, As the water is warm, that kind of abbreviates the season on both ends. So that's, you know, that presents new challenges for us to try to overcome. Mm. And what about some of the more uh, strong storms we've had in in recent years? I feel like our state's getting windier, Susie. How does that impact the work you're doing on the water? I also feel like our state's (laughs) getting windier. Um, It it impacts it tremendously. We're driving, we're we're riding out, our site in particular, you know, every site is going to be different. It's going to have its own, um, uh, you know, factors that make the site, you know, potentially more dangerous. We, we're, we're out there. We're not out in the open ocean, but we're kind of in the middle of the Fisher's Island Sound. Um, we have a very strong current that rips through our site. So when you are riding your boat out and you're anchoring into um, a mooring that is holding the farm in place and uh, the wind is blowing in the wrong direction or in the opposite direction of the that you need it to be blowing, um, you have the current going in a direction that isn't um, helpful for you know whatever you're trying to do while you're out on the farm, it can be really dangerous. You run the risk of tangling, you know, your prop in your own gear. You run the risk of swamping your boat. And the water, as we mentioned, it's cold. It's winter. There's not as many. There's there's really not anybody out recreationally on the water. We happen to be located in Stonington, Connecticut, where the last commercial um, fishing uh, docks are. So there are fishermen that we see coming and going from those docks. But it is a um, it can be really tricky. And so that wind will, you know, essentially keep us off the farm. It also puts a lot of wear and tear on our gear, which is, um, uh, aside from being extremely expensive, we want to make sure that holds as a safety issue for the rest of the people that are in our area. So it, it can be problematic. It requires us to think things through um, a little bit more thoroughly than I think we did the first year we put our farm out. You're hearing Susie Flores here on Where We Live. She's one of the few kelp farmers in our state. She and her husband own Stonington Kelp Company, a regenerative ocean farm, the largest commercial seaweed farm in the state. Uh, Susie, I had asked Anushka earlier about some of the challenges to grow this industry. Uh, What would you like to to see from the state and others uh, to help uh, promote uh, seaweed farming in our state to help people um, with that investment uh, to get going? I think... um I feel very fortunate to be doing this where I am doing this. I think the state of Connecticut has been um, very supportive of the farm, very supportive of the industry, and um, very responsive to the requests that, you know, I have put forward, um, things that I'm asking for. So, you know, I just want to start out there that I feel I feel like we're in a really wonderful position. One of the biggest challenges that I find is just the general education about um, to the public about what it is that we're doing. We're, we're growing a food that is wildly uh, 
sustainable from a perspective of its production. And it also is very, very healthy. And it's, you know, just trying to get people to wrap their heads around this concept that, you know, you can eat this native um, sugar kelp and it can actually be delicious. It's, it's kind of bizarre that that's not something that's endemic to New England since it is a resource that we have. Um, so trying to get people excited about eating it would help us kind of create a larger market. And then ultimately, I would love to see more farmers. Um, I am, as you mentioned, one of the few farmers in this area. We have a small cooperative where um, the other Connecticut farmers, as well as a few farmers uh, in Rhode Island, work together to try to share our sales channels. So, um, you know, if there's a, a big order that perhaps I can't fulfill, I want to be able to lean on other farmers and kind of um, share the wealth so that we all can thrive in uh, in this space. And, you know, I, I think that that'll, you know, start to help other things, you know, that'll uh, grow perhaps the desire to invest in more infrastructure. Um, it'll, uh, you know, just bring more attention to this region in general. And it's a really cool way to kind of set up a new working waterfront economy, um, in my opinion. So I think that that's what I would like to see is just more groundswell from people who are asking restaurants to carry it, who want to see it, um, you know, in their local markets um, and who are willing to try to cook with it at home. Mm. We'll be hearing from a local executive chef about a restaurant that's helping support sustainable uh, farming. Uh, first, we're hearing from Susie Flores, a kelp farmer and owner of Stonington Kelp Company, as we learn about regenerative ocean farming in our state. Also with us on Zoom, Anushka Concepcion, who's an extension specialist with the Connecticut Sea Grant and Yukon Extension Program. After the break, we're going to learn what it would take to encourage more regenerative ocean farming in our state. And by the way, how does it taste? You can join us, 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WNPR. Or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. ECMO is a leading-edge, life-saving treatment for patients with cardiac or respiratory failure. Dr. Jason Gluck, director of the Mechanical Circulatory Support Program and Emergency Cardiac Care at Hartford Hospital, explains what it is. So ECMO stands for extracorporeal membrane oxygenation, outside the body oxygenation of blood. It's a life support technique that's used by highly sophisticated medical systems for patients with severe heart or lung failure. The technique involves removing blood from the body, oxygening it, and then returning it back. ECMO procedures happen in the ICU, but not all hospitals are equipped with the necessary technology and staff. Dr. Gluck describes Hartford Hospital's ECMO Go Team. So ECMO is considered when treatments have failed, and in our center, with a special ECMO on the go team, we'll actually take that technology to their hospital and help them out there if they need to to stabilize the patient and then bring them back to heart for recovery. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. The National Marine Fisheries Service says seaweed farming is the fastest growing aquaculture in the U.S., Growing and harvesting seaweed like kelp can help fishermen and ocean farmers diversify their operations and be more efficient, utilizing the entire water column for crops harvested at different times. 
Kelp farming is also regenerative, helping to revive ocean ecosystems. Now, there are farms in places like Washington State, Alaska, and here in Connecticut. My guest, Susie Flores, is a kelp farmer and owner of the largest commercial seaweed farm in our state, Stonington Kelp Company. And also with us, Anushka Concepcion, who's an extension specialist with the Connecticut Sea Grant and Yukon Extension Program. If you have a question about kelp farming, our number 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WMPR. Or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Uh, Susie, I understand you have a partnership with Green Wave, which is a nonprofit uh, really here to help with regenerative ocean farming. Tell us about it. Absolutely. So um, in the beginning of my uh, my Google deep dive into seaweed farming back in 2016, um, I came across a, a Yukon instructor, Charlie, Dr. Charlie Yarish, who um, I reached out to him uh, privately and he said, you need to talk to the people at Greenwave. So I, I reached out to them as well. Greenwave is a nonprofit um, based in New Haven, Connecticut, that is essentially set up to help uh, aspiring kelp farmers like my husband and I at the time get going. So they they helped us through, um, they gave us guidance through the permitting process. They, they basically told us the people who we needed to reach out to. In fact, Anushka was one of the people they put us in touch with right away. Um, they uh, provided some uh, schematics for examples of a uh, safe uh, farm that could be set up in the state of Connecticut. Uh, they helped me learn how to tie knots. I sat on a boat with Bren while he showed me how to tie a bowline knot, which I did not know because I was not a boat person before I started the seaweed farm. Um, so they were tremendously helpful. And in fact, if there are any aspiring seaweed farmers out there, they just launched this fabulous program um, on their website. It's the, uh, the Farmer Hub, where you can go and watch um, uh, videos that kind of give you a tutorial of how to set up a farm, they give you um, uh, software that allows you to help uh, with site selection, um, um, business plan, uh, modeling. It's it's really a whole wealth of information. And it's one of those things that I really wish I had in the beginning. It would have saved me a lot of time, um, probably saved them a lot of time mm-hmm. for me just emailing them and calling them. So um, I would highly recommend that as well as the Seaweed Hub, which also is a big wealth of resources for any aspiring farmers, especially those in Connecticut, um, Rhode Island or New York. You mentioned Bren. That's Bren Smith, co-founder of Green Wave. Again, this nonprofit operating out of Connecticut, uh, helping support regenerative ocean farmers. That farming hub that you mentioned, a regenerative ocean farming hub, uh, a seed to sale resource uh, to help provide training and uh, tools to a community of kelp farmers nationwide. Has it been difficult to stay profitable, Susie? When we when you're talking earlier about you know some of the challenges when it comes to you know the season being shorter or the type of weather that we have that can tangle up your boats? Yeah, it, it really, it is difficult. Um, it's difficult for any small business, I think, to, uh, to get started up, especially small businesses that have a, a business model that's already essentially established in a market that already exists. So this is, um, this is particularly challenging, but because of that, it's particularly fun. Um, I uh, mentioned before, this is not the only uh, thing that we rely on to feed our family. Mm -hmm. So my husband and I um, own and operate a marina. We also have another water-based business servicing um, moorings in our area. So this is just a a piece of the puzzle. And I think that I, I, you know, 
th that might not be the approach that everybody takes, but a lot of the smaller farmers, I think, need to uh, approach it with the understanding that um, this is a way to kind of diversify your, um, you know, your whole portfolio. If you will, it's not necessarily the, uh, the you don't want to put all your eggs in one basket, so to speak. Um, I think that because the industry is so new, though, it does provide a lot of opportunity. And, you know, it's there's always, you know, some sort of amazing idea that we can kind of noodle on and think about whether or not this will be uh, another potential way to utilize kelp. Kelp isn't just for food. We grow it primarily for food, but there's a lot of other applications. It can be used um, uh, as a bioplastic. It can be, it's being looked into for um, biofuels. Uh, it also is a wonderful soil amendment as well. So, um, and I mean, that's just to name a few. So there's a lot of other ways that you can leverage this uh, awesome local crop. I mentioned Anushka uh, Concepcion is with us from Connecticut Sea Grant. When we think about what Connecticut has going forward in terms of its sugar kelp grown and harvested here, I understand that you've done a lot of work around food safety for kelp farmers and sales and how that can be leveraged compared to some other states that kelp farm, Anushka. Yeah, so um, <clears throat> when we first started investigating food safety, it was it was really a need because in Connecticut, all aquaculture producers have to operate under um, a food safety plan called a HACCP plan. And um, at the time, we didn't really understand what the potential food safety hazards, if there were food safety hazards associated with, with sugar kelp. And so that led a six to seven year investigation um, we, uh, into what potential food safety hazards were and how we go about minimizing those hazards so we can maintain food safety, um, especially with the kelp that we're producing. And this, was, uh, this is still an ongoing effort, a partnership with the Connecticut Department of Agriculture's Bureau of Aquaculture. And really, they're the lead regulatory authority um, for not just permitting, but also food safety of our seafood products in the state of Connecticut. And so <clears throat> what we did was partnered with farmers, um, deploying um, seaweed out in, into the environment, collecting samples. And so now we're able to, or we were able to uh, produce a food safety guidance document um, where seaweed producers can produce a food safety plan um, that's in um, operate or uh, that's approved by the state of Connecticut. And so really that's what makes, I think, our Connecticut seafood products, especially our sugar kelp, really, really unique and special. It's something that many other states don't have. And I think that's really exciting because not only can Susie with a 100% say, my seaweed is safe to eat, she can also hold up her seaweed producer license and say it's, stay, it's safe because the state of Connecticut has tested it and approved it. And so I think that ha Connecticut has an advantage by um, having those um, guidelines in place that really makes us competitive with, with other states and product that we import from overseas. Uh, Susie Flores, prior to you and your husband starting to farm kelp, I understand you had a background in market development. You're an executive. So you've been able to leverage that skill set, thinking about how food education is also an important part of this? Yeah, oddly, um, that's actually come into play a lot. It, you know, this is a new and emerging market. So my experience uh, working on developing new marketplaces um, for at an ed tech company really came in very handy a lot of the frameworks and just kind of the the habits that i had acquired so i'm i'm really grateful for that i didn't expect to be doing so many spreadsheets as a farmer but it is what it is 
<laughs> Again, you can join us at 888-720-9677 if you have a question about kelp farming in our state. Um, Anushka, you know, earlier Susie was talking about, you know, this uh, almost a collaborative, how these kelp farmers are helping each other. And, you know, now that New York State is uh, just signed, uh, their governor signed a kelp bill into law, you know, how this all works uh, regionally. Can you explain that for us? So every state is going to be different in um, with the agencies involved um, with permitting, but also with, with public health and ensuring public health. But really what we're doing regionally and even nationally is working together uh, with one another and sharing ideas, really sharing experiences, what worked for us, what didn't work, what we should have done. Um, so because uh, seaweed farming is an emerging industry, we're really at a great point where we can hopefully prevent some of the mistakes made um, with other commodities and other industries. Um, and so what we do is, is we're working closely with our um, colleagues on the New York side um, to learn what, you know, what they're doing and they're learning from our mistakes and they are also developing food safety guidance. Um, and so that, it's just part of that collaborative effort through the Sea Grant program. We are a national program and there's 34 sea grant programs <clears throat> excuse me um, across the country um, and also uh, at the research side as well a lot of the researchers also work together and collaborate on projects so this is really a group effort and it's really exciting to see all of these folks all these different stakeholder groups coming together with regulators talking with other regulators from other states um, and we're really coming up with with a plan um, on how we can move seaweed um, farming um, forward to make it commercially uh, viable for everyone. So it's it's a very exciting time. The National Seaweed Hub that Susie mentioned is also part of this effort that's really facilitating a lot of these conversations. And that's a Sea Grant-led effort. Mm. That's Anushka Concepcion here on Where We Live, an extension specialist with the Connecticut Sea Grant and Yukon Extension Program. Also with us, Susie Flores, a kelp farmer and owner of Stonington Kelp Company, a regenerative ocean farm, the largest commercial seaweed farm in our state. After the break, we'll learn how local restaurants are helping support sustainable fishing and farming. First, today is the last day of Connecticut Public's end of the fiscal year drive. Support the station and all of its programming, including where we live, with a pledge. Here are two of my colleagues to tell you more. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. We've been learning about kelp farming in our state. Local restaurants can help support sustainable fishing and farming. David Standridge is executive chef at Shipwright's Daughter and Mystic, where Connecticut sugar kelp is on the menu in some innovative ways. He joins us now on Zoom. David, welcome to our show. Thanks. Thanks so much for having me on. Uh, First off, the mission of Shipwright's Daughter. How kelp fits in, David? Um, well, you know, when I moved here to open this restaurant, um, I just wanted to get involved in the community and 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 just find ways to to help and be supportive. Um, and one of the first things I looked at is, you know, how are we producing our food locally? And so I discovered the local fishing fleet, and um, I pretty quickly stumbled upon Susie and her kelp farm. And so our mentality is we just want to try to use local products and help local producers as much as possible get into the marketplace. When we think about um, how uh, you know fishing has changed in our state, you know, are you having conversations with local fishermen about you know their catch and um, you know how that's changing and how you're able to incorporate something like kelp? Yeah, I mean it's um, 
environmentally things are changing very quickly the lobsters are kind of going away and mm -hmm. and different fish species are becoming either more scarce or more populous depending on the the effects of the water temperature changes um so it's always it's always in flux um and you know kelp has kind of become a big part of what we do for a lot of reasons um one it's totally delicious um which is a great product on the plate and it also comes at a really great time for us in the early spring when there's no other vegetables locally produced. So it fills a great gap for us in, on the menu. Yeah, Susie Flores says it's delicious as well. So describe the taste for us and how are you using kelp on your menu? We use it in so many different ways. Um, the flavor profile is, is you know, it's kind of a, got a briny, umami quality. It's vegetative. Um, it it kind of depends where the kelp is from. I mean, Susie's kelp is from kind of out near Fisher's Island and it tastes to me almost exactly like Fisher's Island oysters has a very clean, briny crispness to it and sweetness. Um, and it's it's really easy to put on the plate because it, it you can eat it. I've Many times I've been out on the boat with Susie and just eat it right out of the water. It's delicious just on its own. Um, but we use it in everything from desserts um, where we make a candied kelp or a kelp caramel um, to um, entree preparations where we wrap fish in it and almost kind of substituted it for like how you would have wrapped something in bacon or smoked the kelp and then wrap a, a fish or, or pork in it and use it as kind of a crispy wrapper. I deep fry it and, and top it as a crispy thing. It goes in pastas, soups, all kinds of different sauces. It's, it's very versatile. Okay, I think you've sold me on uh, sugar kelp in Connecticut. Uh, Ida has a question from New Britain. Ida, what's your question for David Standridge? Oh, my question had to do with how, what, well, of course, you sort of answered it just now. Thank you for having me on. Um, do you think it'll ever come that we'll have the kelp in a market where somebody like me can buy it? Uh, and if we do buy it, well, from what you're saying, it, I should consider something like that in a sauce or something, not like a vegetable, right? David? Um, not necessarily. I mean, I, I think Susie probably have more information on whether or not you'll be able to see it in the market soon, but, um, I love it just as a salad. I mean, if you ever had seaweed salad at maybe a sushi restaurant, um, you can just add it to your salads. It's a great vegetable additive. Um, I do use it in oh. sauces, but, um, it's great also just thrown into pasta. You can definitely use oh, it as a vegetable. Okay. <laughs> right. So that sounds interesting. And then that would be nice. I would make a suggestion for people who are marketing this that they market to more than just the fishermen out there. I mean, we're interested, at least I'm interested, and many people must be interested in increasing their their ability to buy fish. Fish is not very available in, in uh, New Britain or Hartford and so forth. You only see it in grocery stores, and that's a small area relative to the big area where there's a lot of meat. Mm. Thank so, you. Thank uh, you, Ida, for your, your okay. comments and questions. Uh, Susie Flores, uh, I don't want to know, you know, could she pick it up as a, just a regular consumer at, the, uh, at a local market near her? What can you tell us about that? It's, um, it's a wonderful question. Um, we're trying to get into as many places as we possibly can. But as I'm learning more and more about um, how the uh, food systems work and the supply chains work for food, um, it's it's a little bit more complicated. And uh, I'm not an expert. I can't really speak to it. But um, uh, in this instance, it's a matter of getting distributors interested. So people who distribute uh, seafood across the state of Connecticut. Um, and so we're, we're knocking on some doors and we're trying hard to sell them on the idea of carrying kelp. So the more people like Ida out there can 
ask their local markets to carry this product, the better chance I have of, um, you know, getting somebody to say yes to me when I, when I'm, you know, begging them to, <laughs> to put kelp on their list. That's again, Susie Flores, a kelp farmer and owner of Stonington Kelp Company. Anushka Concepcion, we've heard David Standridge with Shipwright's Daughter talking about these different ways to use Connecticut sugar kelp. Would you describe it as a delicacy? I think it is. And, but really, and it's, it's just such a natural, wholesome, local food. And as David mentioned, just eating it right out of the water, it's, it's a taste and has a texture um, that I haven't had in any other form. And so it's just such an underrated <laughs> food source that, um, you know, just again, asking for it, having, you know, going to your seafood market and just saying, I heard about Connecticut kelp. Where can I get some? And mentioning that there's farmers in Connecticut that's producing this resource. You know, I think it's it's just really, again, it's underrated. And I think that, you know, the more folks that have access to sugar kelp, um, Susie's doing her best and David's doing an amazing job um, promoting this, this local crop. It's just, again, coming down to, to just requesting it. More, more uh, requests, increases orders, and then increases the number of farmers. And so it's just, again, it works hand in hand. Mm. David Standridge, again, is executive chef at the Shipwright's Daughter and Mystic. So, David, when you have this uh, on one of your patrons' plates, what are their questions? Uh, do they ask about if it's nutritious? And, you know, how do you, I guess, in the sense of um, appeal, make this more appealing to people so that they do ask for it next time? Um, I think it, it's like this with a lot of products that are new and we want to serve. Um, if you make it delicious and you just kind of put it in front of people, it's pretty easy sell. Um, we haven't really had, I, I was very surprised actually with sugar kelp that I had no issue getting people to try it. Um, it was just simple and easy. Um, but there are kind of like some tricks we have. Like I actually use it in desserts. I feel like people are a little more apt to experiment with a dessert rather than with their main course. So we kind of throw it in there. Um, and then a lot of times I just don't tell people it's on the, <laughs> it's in what they're eating. It's just kind of there and it's hiding. And then when they ask how, like, why is this so good? That's a great lead in to say, well, that's because there's kelp in there. And then they, they can kind of become more comfortable with it. Mm. Uh, earlier, I talked with you, David, about, you know, how the fishing industry is changing in current terms of certain uh, fish that may not be as readily available. Uh, you know, when we think about, um, you know, do you talk with other fishermen about some of this the less popular fin fish that's also uh, ending up on your menu? Yeah, it's it's a huge part of what I've been trying to do since we came here is try to get more underutilized species um, in restaurants and just get getting more fishermen to keep them and to sell them. Um, it's really interesting. There, there's a ton of bycatch, obviously, that we're, a lot of people are aware of and wonderful species of fish that are delicious and that um, are basically being wasted right now. And so um, it's been kind of challenging, but I've started to make some headway in getting things like sea robin and skate um, and dogfish and just some uh, lesser known species that are quite populous that can take some of the pressure off of the really popular fish that everybody likes, like, you know, cod and haddock and, and fluke. Um, but um, yeah, there's so much of it out there and we're happy to try to get it. Do people have an appetite for mackerel? I remember trying that at Prince Edward Island, and, you know, it's pretty tasty. <laughs> Mackerel's amazing. And um, the one I really is kind of my poster child is sea robin because a lot of people have caught it. It's kind of a really weird-looking fish, um, but it's always just been tagged as this, quote-unquote, garbage fish. 
that you just either throw back or you're trying to fish for something else and you always end up catching it. But it's actually one of my favorite fish. It's meaty and, and, and flaky and delicious. Um, so we're trying to get it out there. Before we run out of time, Anushka Concepcion with uh, Connecticut Sea Grand. Uh, just a couple of minutes left, but we started the conversation talking about Connecticut's shellfish uh, industry. And when we think about the benefits to, say, our oysters, uh, how kelp farming could help them, um, you know, is it feasible or practical uh, when we think about, you know, the, the commercial market to help enhance oyster growth? So um, uh, that's a great question, and thank you for bringing it up. A lot of research right now is underway just to prove that. Um, and so the results so far, pre- preliminary results look promising that cultivating uh, sugar kelp along with different species of shellfish can, in fact, help promote growth um, of shellfish and, and other benefits um, um, to shellfish. So stay tuned. You know, we it, it, this research is happening all across the country but um, still can't give you a definitive yes or no that this is a, you know, a magic formula. Susie Flores is still with us again. She's like a kelp farmer, owner of Stonington Kelp Company. Uh, For people who are wondering about the nutrition of Connecticut sugar kelp, what can you tell them? Um, We know that it's high in iron, high in calcium. It's it's, uh, high in omega-3s. A lot of the things that make fish so healthy for us to eat are because fish eat the algae that's in the sea. So it's um, you're kind of cutting out the middleman when you go right to the kelp. Again, that's Susie Flores. Thank you so much for your time on the show, owner of Stonington Kelp Company. We appreciate it. It was also a pleasure to hear from David Standridge, executive chef at the Shipwright's Daughter and Mystic. David, thank you. Thank you for having me. And Anushka Concepcion, uh, doing great work with Connecticut Sea Grant and the Yukon Extension Program. Anushka, thank you. Thank you very much. Have a great day. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Today's show is produced by Katie Pellico. Uh, Coming up on Monday, we're going to talk about lifeguarding. We know it's not just a summer job. It's serious, life-saving work. And there's a lifeguard shortage, how it impacts our residents. And data show that drownings are on the rise. We hope you join us for that conversation. Now, before you head off uh, to the rest of your day, it's Connecticut Public's end of the fiscal year campaign, where we live talks about a lot of different topics. We ask listeners to join in and we talk to Connecticut residents from all over our state. If you appreciate this type of programming, as well as everything else Connecticut Public provides, please support us now. Here's how.